Who's, who's ready for this? Is everyone more ready than me? So, one of the things I do is I, I organize events that, uh, that a Lutheran organization, or uh, an organization with a lot of Lutherans in it, in it put on. And we invite other speakers uh, from other traditions a lot of the time. And uh, as, I, as I come here as a, as a Lutheran to uh, a broadly Episcopalian group, one of the things I've noticed when you have speakers of other traditions at your things is they will, they'll, they'll start with, they'll tell a joke about that tradition that they're, that they're part of. Uh, or about the, uh, so if you invite a Baptist or a Presbyterian or an Episcopalian to your, your Lutheran event, uh, they'll have like this joke about Lutherans that everyone finds funny. And so as I was trying to make a really good impression and break the ice, I thought I need like something really funny to say about Episcopalians. But the, the issue that I ran across for the opening of this is I didn't know any Episcopalian jokes. So, um, I'm going to take this off. So, um, whoa, I'll keep it down here. So what I did was literally, this is me in a, in a panic state trying to figure out how to open, an, open a breakout. And I don't know any Episcopalian jokes. So I do what I do in all times of crisis. Uh, I turn to the all-knowing, almighty Big G and Googled Episcopalian jokes. And after misspelling Episcopalian a number of times, I got, it turns out there's a lot of Episcopalian jokes. But then I was confronted with another problem, which I did not get any of them. And you have a, you're in a dangerous situation. This is a dangerous proposition where you're like, are these jokes funny? Are these jokes offensive? Can you randomly pick one and, and risk everyone walking out because you just horribly insulted them? And as I was doing that, I'm like, man, I just can't. I, just, I was just dead set on this opening. I just realized that I was the joke for the opening. Uh, I, I am an, an Episcopalian joke. So, but in the, in, I still hadn't quite given up. So um, I, I decided to ask my, my Episcopalian Anglican friend who's a retired Anglican priest, older guy. I was like, hey, do you know any non-offensive but really funny Episcopalian jokes? And he's like, I don't tell jokes, Daniel. I preach law and gospel. But I'll tell you something about how the law works. When I was a child in Catholic school, we used to go to lunch and during lunch, we would, we would have this line. And one time, me and my friend were in this lunch line, and there was this big basket of apples, and there was a sign by the apples that said, take one, God is watching. So we took one, and we moved down and got the rest of our lunch. And at the end of the line, there's this big basket full of cookies. And I lean over my friend, and I said, take as many as you want. God's watching the apples. And that's when I realized that he told the funniest jokes because he's trying to tell me, I don't tell jokes, Daniel, I just talk about the law. Now, those are, those are stories, one involving, well, both involving me, but one from someone much funnier than me. And the reason we like that kind of stuff is because 
we like stories because we're all in stories. The, our lives are just a long series of stories. And Jesus is in love with stories. He comes and just tells story after story after story. And I think maybe one of the most profound things in the New Testament said about the parables, you hear a lot about this sort of stuff in the parables, like they were, the parables were given so that that people couldn't understand them. He didn't, they were, those who had ears could hear and everything was in secret. But Matthew kind of says like the opposite of that, which is this. And I think that this gives you reason to investigate the parables and think about stories differently. In Matthew 13, uh, Matthew states that all these things Jesus said to the crowd in parables, indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. That's interesting because in the, I know for a fact that that's not true. Uh, he does say things that aren't in parables. But apparently Matthew doesn't think he says much that really, really, really matters that isn't associated with story form. But he says this, he does this to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So Matthew says the reason Jesus spoke in parables is to show people things that have been hidden from the foundation of the world but these are truths these are realities these are secrets that have always been and that gives you reason to look at them and the stories of Jesus are stories that that really really at their core disrupt what we think about God what we think about ourselves and certainly what we think about how the kingdom of God works so many of Jesus parables start the kingdom of heaven is like and it is something that's unlike anything that you would think of. The, the parable I'm going to primarily talk about here is the weeds and the wheat, because the theme here is grace in divided times. And what you have in the parable, the weeds and the wheat, and we eventually will read it, but you have this parable where, where Jesus talks about this field. This guy owns a field. And he sows good seed in the field. And then the, and then an enemy comes in and sows bad, fields, uh, bad seed in the field. And there's weeds and there's wheat and they're growing up together. And his servants want to go and hack down all the, all the weeds, purge the, purge the field. And, and he says no, and we'll read it. But I think that sometimes we think that that's just a parable about the church. And, and that certainly is, but... In the parables of Jesus, the field always represents the world. And, and Christians do this in the church and outside of the church where they, where they want to identify weeds and they want to identify others and figure out how to separate, how to, how to divide, how to categorize everything and everyone. When I was growing up, my, uh, I grew up in church. My dad was a pastor and um, it was not a reformational tradition church. I grew up in, in a, a more Jesus people, USA kind of deal. Um, I was a frequenter to the Pensacola revivals and, and that sort of thing. But um, when I was like 13, I was caught, I was seen walking down a street in our town smoking cigarettes, which was reported by this woman in my church to another woman in my church, which was reported to my mom because she just thought she should know. And also she wanted to inform her that I would no longer be allowed to hang out with her son. Now, I only know this because I walked into the living room and my mom's having this heated conversation with this woman over the phone. 
I mean, I never heard my, mom, my mother angry. She's very proper and pious. And she was just lighting this lady up about the horrors of gossip and slander and telling her, uh, it was an all-law sermon. It was harsh. And, and I perceived that this is about me smoking. And I'm like, oh my gosh. But here's the thing. It turns out that I was not smoking. I had, I had bought a pack of candy cigarettes and I was walking down the street pretending like I was smoking these, these candy cigarettes. So I, go to the, I run to my room and I get my backpack and I pull out the, the box and my mom's still on the phone. And I'm like, I've got the evidence. You are right to defend me. I am innocent. And she just kind of, and after the phone call, she never brings it up at any point during the call. And I'm like, what? Why didn't you tell her? Like, it's right here, Mom. Like, I'm going to lose a friend over this. Why didn't you tell her it was candy? And she's like, because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it was candy or not. It's not the point. And so at that moment, I realized that she wasn't defending my innocence. She didn't even think I was innocent. She was just defending me. And that stuck with me and I, I don't know that I knew right then that what I was experiencing was this weird form of grace that even though I wasn't guilty of that per se, but that, that I had this person over me that was willing to defend me, that was willing to advocate for, be an advocate for me. As I got older and I, uh, I came into the way, the truth, and the Lutheranism, uh, <laughs> uh, I started thinking that I really, I really understood this grace thing, like in ways that my parents didn't, because they were, they were more legalistic and they were more charismatic, and I really understood it. I mean, I did a lot of church history study. I got it. And there was this guy early on in the church plant um, that we'll call him Tony. And he was one of those guys that makes you question every single thing you're doing, not because he's questioning everything you're doing, but you think that you might just be terrible at everything that you're doing because he's the kind of guy that, as someone who prided myself, and I do mean pride in the sinful sense, of preaching this unadulterated 200-proof gospel that no one could ever come to your church and ever under any circumstances believe that they were justified by anything other than faith and grace that's it there's no way you're so precise you rail against justification by good works or anything else and this guy like over and over again i would ask him so um, how are you going to gain eternal life and he would always give the wrong answer. And he had been sitting in the pews for quite a while. And you're like, how is, it, how is this happening? And this was the kind of guy that, when you're talking about weeds and wheat, he's the kind of guy that, he came, but in the course of him coming to the church was like on drugs, off of drugs, on drugs, got a job, lost a job, got a job, lost a job, got married, got divorced in like three months, like that's all, it's just, this, just viciously like that. 
And every time I would ask him about salvation, he'd be like, oh, no, 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 man. I mean, I've been walking. Like, I'm not doing that stuff anymore. And it was really frustrating to me because like, he didn't get grace. And I, and I had this, I wondered, is this, is this, this like guy even a Christian? What he, was, what he did was strip me of my sufficiency to think that I had this ability to convert people based on my articulation of the solas or, the, or my articulation of Christ alone for the salvation of the world. That I actually, that my words had no power whatsoever apart from God doing something. Which was actually, for, for a pastor, is actually a pretty tough pill to swallow. But I still thought that I got grace pretty well. I was, I was such a disaster and such a prideful grace monster that uh, I remember one time my mother asked me straight up. She said, do you even believe in the Holy Spirit? And I actually took that as a badge of honor. Like, I talk about Christ so much, she doesn't even think I believe in the Holy Spirit. That's how, that's how Christ-centered I am. Like, like, I could be confused for not even believing he exists. That's how Christ-crucified-centric I am. I may not believe in the Father or the Holy Spirit. But one of the moments that, where I really understood that I had become maybe a little bit of a grace legalist um, because I did, I kind of, I used to, I fought with my parents about baptism and fought with them over the sacraments and fought with them over sanctification. I have a good relationship with them, by the way, they would sit here and laugh at all this. But one day, and this doesn't seem like that much of a crushing, crushing thing, but I was, it was right before Thanksgiving, I needed, I called my dad to figure out what time, and he lives, he lives about an hour and a half east of me, and I, I called him to figure out what time uh, I needed to be there for Thanksgiving, what time dinner was going to be served. And, and, um, and I said, hey, Dad, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm driving to the nursing home. And I grew up in my dad's church, and the, the people there are getting older. I, I know most of them. I, and I thought, oh, well, somebody that I know probably has gone to the nursing home. So... I asked him, uh, well, who's, who's in the nursing home? And he says, this man who does not understand grace like I understand grace. I said, who's in the nursing home? And he says, orphans and widows, son. Orphans and widows are in the nursing home. He wasn't there to see anybody in particular. He's just going to, on Thanksgiving, to go to the nursing home. That's one of the moments I realized that I didn't know anything about this. I had like, I, I theoretically knew things. I knew the theology. But that my parents who had been Christians longer than I'd been alive actually maybe did understand some of this better than I thought and better than me. Now here's how the parable goes. Matthew 13, 24 through 30. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat 
and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? He said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow up together until the harvest. And at the harvest, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now here's my short exposition of this parable in related to our desire to look at those outside the church or those inside the church to determine who is with us and who is against us, who we are to associate with, who we are not, who's in, who's out, who's right, who's wrong, who's dirty, who's clean. This is what I think. We must not think that the point of this story is that the devil has secretly planted people in our midst. There is not a worse construction you can put on someone than the seed of Satan. If that is the point we walk away with, it will make us skeptical of all our neighbors. We will judge them ruthlessly. We will look for reasons to reject them. We need no aid in this work. We do this by default. We are naturally and skillfully bent towards putting the worst construction on everything and everyone. A focus on the devil will always result in weed identifying and gathering. Jesus is in no way in this parable trying to bolster that. It's not the point of the parable that someone came from outside and planted bad things, bad people, things to get rid of. Being devil-centered, this is having the devil, the planter of this seed, be the focus of this, will also get us busy with the work of trying to look like wheat. If we are on the lookout for weeds, we will inevitably believe that others are as well. We will feel an overwhelming pressure to prove to them that we are not to be gathered up and tossed out. So the, the more we look at people and try to identify whether they're in or out or whether we should be around them or not, the, it puts this pressure on you to make sure that you look like someone who should also not be gathered up. We will try to walk like we, talk like we. We will become obsessed with our goodness and everyone else's badness, our, right to, our righteousness and their wrongness. We're, confused, we're, we're sure to confuse rightness for righteousness every time. When we hear there are weeds among the wheat, we have a terrible habit of looking for sinners. The problem is that everywhere we look, all we see is sinners. Turns out sinners are all that there are. Turns out that there's sinners on the left and there's wretches to the right and that's, that's all that there are. The shocking truth is Jesus doesn't say that weeds who look like wheat are the primary problem. If there's, like a, if there's a sentence that I could never hear again, a phrase I, I would never want to hear again, it's this sentence, false convert. Not because such a thing doesn't exist, but man, we are quick with that. False convert went out from us because he never was of us, even though he's not out the door yet. I can just tell by the, his life that he's not of us. So he doesn't say, though, Jesus doesn't say that people who 
try to look like Christians or say that they're Christians but aren't really Christians is really the problem. That's not why he tells them not to gather up. This is not why Jesus tells his servants not to gather up the weeds. Jesus doesn't share our fear of having unbelievers or dirty believers sitting in pews or sitting across the street or in your living room next to believers. If you read this again, the reason he gives is this. We cannot be trusted not to throw out rough-looking wheat along with the weeds. That's the reason he gives. You cannot be trusted to not throw away rough, weed-like wheat in your attempt to clean the field. Jesus knows that wheat can be a whole lot it can look a whole lot like weeds when judging it before the final harvest. Our obsession with keeping our church, our neighborhood, or even our country pure and clean is an outright denial of how very weed-like we all look from time to time or all the time. We've had days, months, years, or decades where we are prone to be swiftly cut down by some zealous servants on a mission to purge the field. Countless splits and schisms in the body of Christ find their roots in this self-righteous and false purity. Every new church, now I've been a part of a lot of different traditions on my way to the, you know, the way, the truth, and the Lutheranism. On my way to that, I've been a part of a lot of other things. A lot of church splits. And this is what you see, that every church, every new church is trying to figure out a way to be purer than the church before it to have less weeds more wheat a church with less substance abuse less porn addiction less adultery less divorce and every other easily identifiable gross weed-like behavior but what we end up with is congregations of people lying to themselves we end up in an assembly of self-deception Now, the one reason that people don't pull up weeds in real life before the harvest is that plants share in the same soil, right? They have their roots intertwined with one another. And if you uproot one, you may pull up the others. This is exactly what Jesus says. If you, if you pull up those, even if, you, even if you rightly identify, like that's a, maybe it's like a, maybe it's like a weed who doesn't mind telling you it's a weed. It's just that person that just doesn't believe. He says, no, you can't uproot them either. Not from, your, not from your life, not from your church, not from your anything. Because if you do, you might pull up something else with it. That's weird. But could it be that Jesus wants our roots and our lives that intimately intertwined? Like we, we think of sinners and sin and weeds as things to stay away from but could it be that Jesus intends for you to have your roots tangled up with the roots of unbelievers and sinners I mean it says that the servants were asleep when these were sown but it doesn't say the master was asleep I mean like God wasn't taking a nap and the devil went and ruined his field. 
He, he let this happen. It was intentional. So I do think, yes, he wants us rubbing up against what we'd rather not be close to. He wants us pulling them in, not pushing them out, to be intimately involved in the lives of faithless people, to point to the point where if they were taken from us, where if this person, this dirty sinner, this even unbeliever, Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter, this unlovable, if they were to be pulled from you, that it would tug at your very roots. And this is a grace not only to them and maybe not even primarily to them, it's a grace to us. It's the ever-present opportunity to exercise the freedom to love and extend mercy to people for whom Christ cares for deeply. And this is the truth. What one day may be burned is here and now to be seen by us as objects of love and mercy and compassion. We cannot clean ourselves up by removing everything dirty from our presence. God doesn't want us to be that deceived. Instead, he says, these are people to be loved. They're not Christian, or maybe, they're, maybe they are. They're not very clean. They don't seem to care. Love them. Let your life become intertwined with theirs. Let it cost you something. There is a, this, this is a grace that will not let you stray too far from sinners lest you start to believe you are no longer one. Now, this is, this is the point of all of this. That's, that's sort of the exposition, short exposition of that parable. Our addiction to judgment is well noted. I don't know if anyone has Twitter, you know how this goes. Just ruthless judgment. It used to be not that long ago that, that uh, John 3.16 was the most well-known verse in the Bible. So uh, it's a good one too. I think John 3.16, it's become cliche, but I think it's underrated. It's a pretty good one. Uh, it's like the whole thing's right there. It's really good. Uh, but now the most well-known verse in the Bible is judge not lest you be judged, which is all over social media all over the place. And what's crazy about this verse, it drives me nuts, is because I hear Christians all the time saying, uh, that verse doesn't mean what you think it means. It doesn't mean don't judge. Yeah, it does. It's like, it's not that hard. It's exactly what it means. Because they don't like it because like, you know, somebody doing some crazy thing, you know, somebody like, you know, married their cat, and they're like, don't judge, and they're like, that's not what that verse means. That's not, it is what it means. It means judge not lest you be judged. Here's, here's what Jesus is saying, though, and it ties into this parable. This is the truth. The reason you should not judge lest you be judged is like this. What Jesus is getting at in telling them not to uproot the weeds and by telling us not to judge, lest we be judged, for with the same manner of judgment we dish out, we're going to receive, is this. You should be very, very careful about the world you create. Because if you create a world, an environment, a society of ruthless judgment, as a sinner, you have to live in that. A world of ruthless judgment is not safe for you. 
That judgment is coming for you. It's dangerous. What kind, of, what kind of world are you going to be in? I think that when you look at another well-known parable about the treasure in the field, it's like one line. This guy found a treasure in a field in his joy gave up everything to go buy the field. Normally this is, trans, you know, people preach this in a horrific way where you're supposed to give up everything to have Jesus because he's a treasure, which there's so much theologically wrong with that. I can't even, that means you're buying Jesus and that right out of the gate, you know that that interpretation doesn't work. But what is it, what, the, what that parable is about is that God uh, in Christ purchases a field and there's a treasure in that field, which is the church. And it's in the ground, in a grave. He buys a graveyard. And enjoy the joy set before him. He gives up everything to have it. That's what it's about. But what's interesting about that is he buys the whole field. It's his field. It's not just the treasure that he buys. Sure, like the treasure's the church. But he buys the whole thing. That's his field now. And in divided times, when we look across the field, we scan the field that he has bought. That he's a propitiation for not our sins only, but the sins of the whole field. We're not going to be about the business of trying to figure out who's in, who's out. Who's the weeds? Where's the weeds? But instead of creating a world of ruthless judgment that then we as sinners have to live in, instead to be representatives of what I would like to call stubborn grace. I used the term stubborn grace not too long ago. I said, great. I told someone, I was like, grace of God is so damn stubborn. They're like, I don't really like the word. I don't really like the term stubborn to describe the grace of God. Because that's stubborn. Like my kid's stubborn. The grace of God is magnificent. It's glorious. I'm like, no, nah, it's stubborn though. He's like, oh, no, I still don't like it. It seems, it seems like you're demeaning the grace. Like it's not good. Well, I, I looked it up, so I was like, I don't know, I think it's right, so let me look it up. Check out the definition of stubborn. Stubborn. Having or showing dogged determination not to change one's attitude or position. But this is the best part. First of all, that sounds like grace. That sounds like God and grace. Dogged determination not to change one's attitude or position, and then this especially in spite of good arguments or reasons to do so. That's exactly what the grace of God is. It's so stubborn. I've been giving God reasons all day, every day to change. People, people would go to God and say, Look, have you looked at the reasons that Daniel has given you to change your attitude or disposition towards him lately? It's, an, it's long. But he's like, no, it's stubborn. The grace of God 
is stubborn. So stubborn that when we approach him and say, I've been noticing that there's a lot of weeds in this field that you've purchased. Would you like me to do the humble work of gathering them up for you? It reminds me of the, when, the, when Jesus was going to cut through Samaria to get to Jerusalem. And uh, the Samaritans were like, we don't really want you here. And the disciples were like, what? And they say, look, they don't want you. Uh, they're not going to, they rejected you. We'll call down fire from heaven if you want. <laughs> There's a lot of weeds there. It's like all weeds. That's what we do. And, and God says you can't be trusted to do that. You cannot be trusted. You are here as, as messengers of reconciliation, as recipients of a stubborn, stubborn grace. That maybe instead of trying to identify weeds and wheat, which we know both exist. We try to create an environment in our churches, in our communities that unites. And the only thing that really unites is we have a million reasons to be divided. I mean, there's a lot of different traditions present here at Mockingbird. Is it not amazing what the, the unifying power of the stubbornness of God's grace you can have people from all kinds of traditions coming together under one banner the grace of God towards sinners towards weeds and weed alike if if we could get a, a handle on that not like the fake handle that I had really understand the, the radicality and the real stubbornness of God's grace and could come together under that then we also could you know start fighting each other on baptism and stuff like God intended <laughs> but until then we it seems that we are in desperate need of uniting around this message of grace to a world that desperately needs it, a world so divided, a world so afraid, a world so fractured, a society that, that we have created of ruthless judgment over and over and over again, where the law always wins. So in divided times, while we may be those of little faith and we might look like some real dirty dirty wheat as recipients of God's stubborn grace I think a little faith in a God of a stubborn grace is exactly what this world needs that's the message And I think that if we look at the field as God's field, and we look at guys like Tony, and I know you're wondering, like, what happened to that guy? Like, did he ever get it? 
Do you ever finally get it? Do you ever give the right answer? Did he finally like get married and keep it, get a job and keep it? Well, Tony's a weird gift. But I'm not going to tell you what happened to him. Because you can't be trusted with that information. And you would just use it to determine whether he was a weed or a wheat. But what I will say is that he was a grace to me from a God of very, very stubborn grace. Amen.